So I'm going to take you now, if I could, to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, where we're going to take a look at a challenging but a really interesting portion of Scripture. And so it's my prayer that as we conclude our time of study this morning, that our passage for today will make sense to you and it'll be something that is very meaningful and valuable to you. So I'm going to ask you to go to Ephesians chapter 4. And now as you're going there, just to set the table for you a little bit for our discussion this morning, I want to remind you of a, a message that I shared with you. It's just been over two years ago now where we were addressing the question, what happens to people who die? And as we address that question, we spent a little bit of time looking at an Old Testament concept. And the Old Testament, I just want you to know, uses the word Sheol, which refers to the grave or to death, about 66 times, it seems, in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, there are technically 10 references to a place known as Hades. Sheol, obviously, is the Hebrew version in the Old Testament. Of course, the It was written in Hebrew, so the Old Testament uses the word Sheol, and in the New Testament, being written in Greek, they use the word Hades. So they pretty much are just two different languages trying to describe the same place. So two words for the same place. The Old Testament calls it Sheol, the New Testament Hades. And I think that it's best for us to think of this place as divided into two compartments. And so I have an image that I want to show you to begin with this morning As you can see, the image is a little bit large for the screen here, but uh, prior to the cross, the spirits of people who died went to Sheol, or they went to Hades. That's this place. Those whose faith was counted as righteousness were in the upper compartment that you see here. The one that says the compartment for the saved. It is Abraham's bosom. It is paradise. It is Abraham's side. It's also known as paradise, as you see. So the upper compartment here, the upper part, this is good, this is joyful, this is happiness, and it's where the spirits of all of those who had faith were kept after physical death during Old Testament times. So it's filled with all of the people of history since the time of creation who had faith in God. So now in the lower half that you see there that says that it's the compartment for the unsaved were kept all of those who were not counted as righteousness because of their faith in God. So these are the souls of all of the people who did not have faith. These are the souls of all of those who did not have faith in God. And so as such, they were not counted as righteous. There are also some demons who got themselves in trouble. They got a little bit out of line prior to the flood and they were bound by God and they're kept there as well. They're still bound and they're there now. And so this is a place of torment, this lower compartment. It's a place of torment. So what we have here is we have the souls of the righteous dead in the upper compartment. We have the souls of the unrighteous dead in the lower compartment. And separating the two there, you can see the line that says a great gulf is fixed. And you'll remember this from the book of Luke. that There's this great chasm between the two places so that no soul can cross from one side to the other. It can't be done. So now I want you to just hang on to that information that I gave you and we're going to move on. We can take that slide down and we're going to move on. But we will come back to that. Second Samuel chapter 11 tells us that at the times of the Old Testament, the kings would often go out to war during the spring. Nations would battle other nations for conquest or maybe for resource. And sometimes they would just battle one another because they hated each other. But nations would always go out to battle. And when they would do that, they would do that during the springtime. And the kings would typically go out to battle with their troops and they would command their troops from a distance. They would stay at a safe place and they would watch the battle from quite some distance. 
And sometimes nations who were on conquest, they would actually surround a particular city and they would shut off all of the supplies to that city. They would make sure that nothing could come in and nothing could go out. And so they would encamp around it until all of the people inside the city were completely desperate. They would starve them. They had no ability to get water, no ability to get food, and soon the city would be so unhealthy, it would be so incapable of mounting a worthy defense that it would be easily conquered, and then the invaders could just walk right in and take over. And then what would happen is, when a king was ultimately victorious as he had gone out to battle or as he had seized a particular city, they would move in and he would capture as many of the enemy as he possibly could, and he would carry them off. And they would serve as slaves to the victors, often serving in terrible conditions. The conquering king would take riches, he would take silver, he would take gold, he would take their resources... He would go into the temple of their gods and he would carry away all of their idols. He would carry away all of their holy relics. He would carry away everything of value that he could find. And he would take it back to his land. He would take it back to his own land and then he would share it with the people of his country. And often, as a king was invading and conquering other lands, they would find people from their own lands who had previously been taken captive. They'd been captured years before. He would find people of his own nationality who had been trapped there in the foreign country or in the foreign nation for many years, who themselves had been held captive, forced to serve as slaves. And when the king came in and he captured the city and he captured the nation, he conquered the nation, and he carried off all of the spoils and all of the great things, he would take home with him those people of his own nation who had been served as, who had served as slaves for all these years, and they would be liberated, they would be set free. At the conclusion of the conquest, he would make his way back to his home. And the king and his surviving troops, they would make their way to the city of the home nation where the palace of the king was. And word, of course, would always make it to the city ahead of the troops because they would send messengers out. The messengers would get to the city before the troops did. And as the king would enter the city, there would be this huge celebration. There would be great rejoicing. Families... And loved ones would rush out to the streets, hoping to catch a a glimpse of their returning heroes, their husbands and family members who had gone off to battle. Families and spectators would burn incense, and they would throw flowers into the streets ahead of the procession. Great and joyful celebration, can you imagine? Great celebration would ensue as the procession began to make its way along the city streets, as they began to make their way into the city walls and proceed through the city streets. They would be trampling the flowers underfoot. With the burning of incense, there would just be this aroma. There would be the smell of the flowers that had been trampled. There would be the smell of the incense burning all through the city. And they would enter the city victorious. The first to enter would be a certain detachment of troops. These men who had been in combat, these soldiers who had been fighting diligently and fighting faithfully, they would lead the way. And behind them would come chained up and tied all of the captives. All of the people that they had conquered. All of those that they were forcing to serve as slaves. 
And they would lead them in, as you can imagine, as these people came walking into the city behind the troops, that they would often have things thrown at them as they were coming into the city. They would be taunted. Maybe they would throw, the crowds would throw stones at them. Maybe they would throw whatever they could find, and they would taunt them as they entered the city, hurling whatever insults, whatever things they could get their hands on, whatever they could do behind those conquered slaves, those defeated people of other nations would come even more troops of the victor. Behind them then would come the king. And as the king entered the city, as the king entered the town, the rejoicing would hit this fever pitch and there'd be shouting and there'd be celebration and everyone would be screaming and it would just be a great time of joy. Behind him would come wagons and carts filled with all of the things, all of the spoils and all of the riches that they had captured as they had invaded the foreign nation. And just picture, if you could, in your mind's eye, this king, as he's coming through the city, as they've got carts and wagons all around, handing out spoils. Imagine him handing out the gifts to the adoring crowds as he entered the city and made his way through the streets. To some, maybe he gave out some trinkets. To others, maybe he gave away a few animals from the herds that he had captured. To others, maybe he gave away some tools. Or some pieces of gold or other valuable things. Maybe he even gave away some of the slaves that they held captive. And behind all the spoils would come more troops. And then, at the end of it all, imagine the rejoicing and the shouting as those people, as those loved ones who had been held captive by the enemy for all of those years, for all of those months, were finally returned home to their families. Those who had been taken and forced to serve as slaves, their countrymen finally made their way back home. Maybe they had been carried away by the enemy years ago and forced to live in terrible conditions, and now they had their freedom. They were back home. They were returned with great joy to their families. And in a great twist, the captors of those people the captors of those one who had held the countrymen of the conquering king captive, they themselves now were being paraded into the city, captured, enslaved, to be tortured, to be dominated, to be controlled. It was a great time of celebration. It was unbelievable to watch as the families were returned or as the lost ones were returned to their families. There would be religious feasts, there would be celebrations, and they would go on for months and months sacrificing animals to their gods. Can you imagine? But do you know this would also be a time of great mourning? Among all the celebration, among all the joy, of all of the riches that have been captured, of the families being restored and returned, among all of the spoils and all the gifts that the king was handing out, all of those that had been liberated from captivity, all of those things came at a very, very high price, didn't they? You see, there were homes in the city of many soldiers who'd gone out in the spring to do battle who didn't make it back home. you understand? Many of them had died horrible deaths, terrible deaths. For the families of those men, there was great mourning, there was indescribable sorrow. There were little children who were now fatherless. There were wives who were now widows. The death of the loved ones was a great price to pay for the herds, for the trinkets, for the gold, 
for the animals, and for the slaves. Can you imagine what a great price those families paid? Victory and celebration had come at a very, very great price. It was incredibly expensive to those families. Those gifts that they received from the king were especially valuable. Can you imagine how every time the family of a fallen soldier took the gift or the trinket that they may have received from this king and they looked at it, can you imagine how she might have thought of her husband? Can you imagine how she may have thought of her father who had died in combat? To her, the gift was incredibly precious. Do you see? To her, the gift was incredibly valuable. In Psalm 68, there's a passage about God which is very much like what I just described to you this morning. It's a picture of God who just like the kings of the Old Testament has gone out to war. God, of course, as He's gone out to war, is victorious. And as He returns to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, He ascends the great hill of the city of God. And as He enters the city, He is carrying with Him all of the spoils of war. As God returns in Psalm 68, He's carrying with Him all of the spoils and all of the captives. Now, Psalm 68, you should know, is a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ. This is a place where you will actually see Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And now, I'm going to take you to our passage for today, and I hope that if you will just hang on to the things that I just shared with you this morning, that the information that I'm going to share with you right now is going to make this passage pop for you. And so I want you to think about all the things that I've just told you as we go to Ephesians chapter 4. And to help it make, help you make sense of what we're covering today, we're going to start actually in the middle of the passage. And then what we're going to do is we're going to wrap it with verse 7 and verse 11 when we're done. So I want to take you now to verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 4. And this is what Paul has written. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, Paul of course is speaking of Jesus Christ here. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he did what? He gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And we started our conversation this morning by me talking about the souls of people who had died in the Old Testament times. And I had told you that they went to one of the two compartments of Hades. Have you ever wondered where Jesus went when he died? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered what happened to Jesus when he died? His body was in the grave for three days, but what happened to his spirit during those three days? Was his spirit dead? Had his spirit gone to heaven? Where was the spirit of Jesus Christ during the time that his body was in the grave? I'm going to take you to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to help you understand that. Take a look at verse 18. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Peter here is speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as you know, being put to death, he says, in the flesh, but made what? But made alive in the spirit. So Peter is telling us Jesus died, his body was physically dead, but he was alive in his spirit. So we know that even though the body, the flesh of Jesus Christ was dead, the spirit of Jesus Christ was not dead, it was alive and it must have gone somewhere. 
So he says that when Jesus suffered, he says that when Jesus was put to death, his body was dead, but his spirit was alive. Now, where did his spirit go? I want to read a little bit further. Take a look at verse 19. He says, in which he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. The in which refers to his spirit. So the spirit of Jesus Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I want to show you that image of Hades one more time. So what happened to the spirit of Jesus Christ when he died? It started at the grave. It descended into the lower parts of the earth. And Paul tells us in Ephesians that he descended into the lower parts. And what did he do during this time that he was in his spirit in the lower parts of the earth? According to Peter, what does Peter say about it? Peter says that he proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison. So what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus proclaimed to them? Well, as Peter says that Jesus proclaimed, he uses the Greek verb, which is the verb that is used to herald or to declare something. There was a message that Jesus dropped off. There was a proclamation that Jesus made when he got there. What was it that he proclaimed? What was it that he declared? What was the message that he heralded? Friends, he declared that it is finished. He declared that he had won Listen to me. When Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, there is absolutely no doubt that Satan watched the cross and he said, we've won, we've got him. And all of his demons watched and said, he's conquered, we've won this battle. He's a loser, we are the victors. And Jesus Christ descended into the lower parts of the earth and he declared to Satan and he declared to all of those in Hades that what looked like a victory to Satan and to his demons was actually the victory of God through Jesus Christ over death. That was the message. Jesus declared to them, I'm victorious. I have been victorious. He declared that death had been swallowed up in victory. He declared that death had lost its sting. Now listen to me. After he did that, he proved the fact that he was victorious over death by ascending from Hades, from the lower parts. And as he did that, he cleared out all of the souls that had been in the upper compartment and he took them to be with the Father. That's what he did. That's where he was. And that's where he ever lives, the Bible tells us, to make intercession for you and me right now, Hebrews 7.25. And now, friends, listen to me. In the New Testament age, it's a brand new economy. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, who dies in the physical body, no longer goes to the upper compartment of Hades as those who did in the Old Testament. Rather, those of us in the church age who die in the physical body immediately go into the presence of Jesus Christ upon their death. Do you get that? That's 2 Corinthians 5. Are you able to see the connection to Psalm 68 here? Are you able to see this? Here's a picture of Christ going out to war. That's what Psalm 68 is. Christ has gone out to war. He's battled sin. He's battled death. And he won. Listen to me. He won. And when he won, he took all of those who had been held captive in the grave in the upper compartment of Hades and he liberated them and he took captivity captive. He took all of those who had once been slaves to sin and he bought their freedom for them. He set them free. He took those held captive and he took the captor prisoner. That's what's happening in this portion of Ephesians chapter 4. Does that make sense to you now? Listen. So what's the point? As I was reading this, I was like, man, what a strange thing 
to insert right here into this portion of the book of Ephesians. This doesn't make sense to me. Why would we put that there? Because it really doesn't seem to fit, does it? Think about it for a minute. At this point in the book of Ephesians, we've turned the corner between chapters 3 and 4 between position and practice. You remember we've spoken about that. For the first three chapters of the book, we learned that our position as members of the body of Christ was a privileged position. We learned of all the privilege that we have in Christ, didn't we? We learned the great mystery of the church in chapter 3. Do you remember that? And the great mystery was that we are all one. There's no longer Jew and Gentile. There's no longer slave nor free. There's no longer male nor female. We're all one. We're all one united body in Christ, the Bible teaches us. And over the first few verses of chapter 4, we learned what that looks like, what that means to us in practical terms. We've learned that members of the body of Christ, seeing themselves as who they are, they recognize their own sin, and they're completely honest with themselves about their own sin. At the same time, these people recognize the great holiness of God. And as a result of those two things, they are people who are completely humble. Those people are people who have been made completely low because of their own self-view. They're humble in every aspect of life. They're people who are gentle. They're people who are meek. They don't need to fight for themselves. They don't need to defend themselves because they think of themselves in all lowliness. They don't feel the need to stand up for themselves. Yet, they're not sissies. They're not cowards. If the honor of their master is at stake, they rush right in fiercely to protect him without any thought of themselves. They're patient, we learned. They're willing to sacrifice long. Remember, macrothumia, they're willing to sacrifice long, to stay on the altar for a long time, making sacrifice of themselves, suffering their circumstances for a long time. They're willing to suffer and be patient as they endure the teaching and the effort to reach other people for the kingdom of God, to the glory of Christ, when those people don't respond, and they don't respond, and they keep on preaching, they keep on teaching, they stay right there with it. We've learned that they suffer long for other believers. They give themselves up. They sacrifice their own desires. They sacrifice their own well-being for that of the other members of the church body. And as a result, we learn that we maintain unity in the church body. These are all things that we've covered in the last few months, aren't they? We've been learning that according to Paul, all of those things are done so that we should be characterized as people who are fitting of our position. That's what it looks like for you to be in the position that you're in. Do you remember that? No. Why did Paul move from that discussion to ascending and descending and taking things captive? Are you wondering that? How does that fit in here? What a weird thing for him to insert in the middle of all of that. Why did we go from how you ought to behave to the ascending and descending and taking things captive? Well, I want to ask you a question. What are we missing in the victorious kingly procession of Christ? Have you thought about that? He's won the battle. We talked about that. He's returned with captives. And he's returned with those who were former prisoners. But what has he not yet done yet? He hasn't given out gifts, has he? That's the key that makes this whole thing work. Take a look at verse 8 now. And we're going to talk about those two bookends that I told you about. This is what verse 8 says. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And what did he do? He gave gifts to men. Do you see that? 
He gave gifts to men just like the conquering king. You and I haven't spoken about the spoils of Christ's victory. He won the battle. He came back with all of the prisoners and with all of those whom he has liberated. Now we just need him to pass out all of the gifts. We need him to pass out all of the spoils. These are the bookends that I was talking about. On one end, the discussion in verse 7, he tells us that he gave gifts out to each individual. Do you know that? We're going to see that in a second. He gave out gifts to each individual. And then on the other end, the other book in verse 11, you're going to see that he gave out gifts to the entire body. Now, in verses 12 through 16, which is the passage we're going to talk about next time we're together, he tells us the reason that he gave us the gifts and the value that they have to the church body. And we will get there next time we get together. But listen, he was so generous in his gifts that he gave each of us gifts individually. And he was so generous that he then gave us corporate gifts to the entire church family. So I want to take a look at each of those bookends and then we'll call it, we'll call it a day. But this is the real point of the passage. This is the real reason that we've gotten to this point in Ephesians chapter 4. Take a look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's really important for us to understand here that in verse 7, the Greek language, the word one, where it says each one of us, this is in what we call the emphatic position. Okay, And what that means to us is that he's saying every single one of you has received a gift. You get that? Each and every single one of you has a gift, he says. There is no one excluded. If you're here today, you have also received a measure of the gift of Christ. Every single one of you has received this measure of the gift of Christ. And I want you to know that your gift is unique. I want you to know that your gift is personalized. God did not hand out duplicates. God did not make you all share one particular gift. There are certain specific gifts that we know are mentioned in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. But Paul is not saying there are a total of 15 distinct gifts and each of you receive one of those. That's not the point here. What he's saying is it's not like you have received only one gift and then you all operate it the same way. That's not the way it works. What he's saying is that you have one gifting, which is a combination of gifting. So to me, maybe God gave four parts teaching, two parts giving, and three parts encouraging. Do you see that? But maybe to you, he gave a different combination of different elements, which makes your gift uniquely you. It gives you a unique fingerprint in the kingdom of God. Maybe he gave to Juan Carlos five points, five parts giving, one part leadership, and three parts faith. But the important thing, friends, listen to me, is not so much the gift itself. The important thing is not the gift itself. So now I want to jump ahead and I want to show you one thing that we're going to talk about next week in verse 12. Look at this. This is the reason that he gave the gift. It says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's the point. That's what we're talking about here. The important thing is that he gave you the gift that you would use it to build up the body of Christ. Friends, if you are here today, you have a purpose. If you are here today, you have a gift that he wants you to exercise, and he wants you to do it in all humility. He wants you to do it in all gentleness. He wants you to do it in all patience. He wants you to do it in all sacrificial love that you may maintain the unity of the spirit of peace in the bond of peace. You understand? He wants you to maintain the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. You don't 
need to run around seeking spiritual gifts. You don't have to worry about that. It doesn't that work that way. You need to get in the body and you need to exercise the gift that he has already designed for you so that the body may be built up. That's what you need to do. Think about it. Think about your own body for a minute. In order to be healthy, in order for your body to operate at optimum efficiency, you need every single member of your body to work the way it was designed to work, don't you? Can you afford for your heart to take a day off? You can't, can you? You can't afford for your heart to take a day off. Your ear would not be able to step in and carry the workload for the heart, would it? It doesn't work that way. If your heart decides to check out, your ear can't pump the blood. You need all the parts of your body working the way that God designed them to work. And they need to be working that way all the time. Friends, that's the way that it is in the church body. The church is not a place for you to come and be entertained. No matter how many people may try to turn it into that, it is not a spectator event. The church is not a place for you to come and pay your admission by dropping a couple dollars in the bucket as it comes past you and then to just sit back, kick your feet up, and enjoy the show. That's not how it works. You see, the church doesn't operate at optimum efficiency unless you're doing what God has designed for you to do. The church can't move along at top speed unless you're doing what God has designed for you to do. There are certain things that you can do that I can't do. There are certain things that you can do that no one else in the body of Christ is able to do. The body needs you to perform your role in order for it to function properly. God has given you a gift. As he was victorious, he handed out gifts and he gave you a unique gift. And the reason that he has done that is that the body might be built up, that the body might be effective. The gifts and abilities that he's given you are for the benefit, my friends, of the body, not for you. They're for the benefit of the body. He has gifted you so that you may serve sacrificially in the body in love and patience building the body up. Do you see that? It's important for us to understand So Paul says each and every single one of you have been given an individual gift and it's very costly. And you're not to take it and hold on to it, put it on a mantle, enjoy looking at it. You're to take it and to put it to work. You understand? The church body is not a spectator event. And I want to share that with you this morning, friends. If you're here and you're a spectator, The body can't work to its optimum efficiency. We have to have you working in your position. We have to have you exercising your gift for us to operate at peak efficiency. So Paul says each and every one of you have been given individual gifts. But there's more than that. In the procession of victory, after conquering death, not only did he give you individual gifts, not only did he give each and every single one of you a special gift that no one else has. But do you know that He also gave out gifts to the entire church body as a whole? How many of you at Christmas ever get the one that says for the Harms family or whatever it is? You know, it's, it's the one that's for the entire family. Do you know that God gave those gifts out too? I want to take you to verse 11 now. And we're going to see the other bookend of our conversation from this morning. These are the gifts that God gave to the church body. And He gave apostles... And it's not apostles, the apostles, that's correctly interpreted. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. 
Aren't you thankful for the work of the apostles and prophets through history? Do you know that Acts 2 tells us that when the body of Christ was formed, that it was the apostles and the prophets who formed the doctrine of the church body? Did you know that? That it was the work of the apostles and the prophets in the early church when people gathered together to study and to understand their doctrine? And we still do that today, don't we? That's what we're doing right now as we're studying the doctrine of the Apostle Paul as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit and he wrote these things down to train us and to teach us and to admonish us. And we come together every week to understand and to study the doctrine of the apostles and the prophets. These are all the men who formed the church, the men that God inspired to write down the Scriptures and to teach the new canon testament to all of those who would hear their voice. But I want you to know that God gave you even more than that. He planned ahead for the church. He planned ahead knowing that one of these days the 13 apostles would be gone if you include Paul. And he gave to the church men to whom he gave special enablements to guide and to protect the church body after the apostles had left the scene. You understand? Do you know who they are? They're the evangelists. They're the pastors. And they're the teachers. The evangelists are the ones who go out and tell the world all the good news. They go out and they tell the world the message of Jesus Christ that people can be saved. They tell everyone that Jesus Christ was victorious over death, that He was victorious over sin, and that there's hope for them. That's the message of the evangelist. They do exactly what our team who went to Guatemala did last fall. They share the message and the hope of Christ with the people in their neighborhoods. They share the message and the hope of Christ with the people in their workplace. That's what the evangelists do. But Paul says that in order for you to live as people of your position... For you to live the way that you ought to live, you need to have some special enablement. That's what Paul says. You need to have these special spiritual gifts that he's given to you to kind of guide you on your way. And you need to operate them in humility and in gentleness and in patience and in sacrificial love. And you need to have someone who can help direct you and steer you as you're on your way. Did you know that? And those are the pastors and the teachers. That's what Paul says. I want you to know that there are some people in my life who've labored over the Word of God to help me understand the truth that's contained there and to help me understand how to apply it to my life. There's one particular teacher who without even knowing it has become a bit of a a mentor to me. I listen to hours and hours and hours of this man's teaching every single week. I think of people like my dad who labored in the Word of God and who trained me for years. And my life has been shaped And my life has been changed over the years as the Lord has used these men and their faithful study to guide me and to correct me through the Word of God. Listen, I am deeply indebted to men like that because they were willing to exercise their spiritual gifts. And because they were willing to do that, I've been built up. My faith has been made stronger through the grace of God. I'm in a better place in my walk with Christ than I've ever been in my life because of their faithfulness. And that's why Paul tells us that in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, that men like that, who labor faithfully in preaching and teaching the Word of God, rightly dividing the Word of truth, they're deserving of double honor. That's what he teaches. And that's why he tells us in 1 Thessalonians that we're to respect those men who lead us and admonish us in the Word of God. That's why he says that we're to esteem them highly and we're to love them because of their hard work. Those who labor diligently to pastor and to properly teach the Word of God carry a heavy, heavy load. 
And I want you to know that I owe those men a great debt of gratitude in my own life. To all those men that have done that faithfully through the years, made me stronger in my faith, helped me to grow deeper in my love for Christ. And when God puts people like that in your life, you need to honor them and you need to follow them. As I was going through this portion of Scripture, I want you to know that it felt really weird for me to feel like I need to share that. I didn't write it, but I felt it would be a disservice for me to not share that with you. At this church, my wife and I have been honored to serve you for two plus years. We love you and we feel loved and appreciated by you. And I don't say this so that there's any particular honor given to us and our family. But one day down the road, I'm not going to be able to continue to pastor. There will come a time when this church will have to find somebody who can replace my wife and me. And I share this with you so that you will know how you are to treat the man that leads your church. When you find someone who rightly divides the word of truth, when you find someone who rightly teaches and guides you from the word of truth, he's worth his weight. And I want to encourage you, if you are attending a church where you do not have a pastor who properly divides the Word of God, you need to find a new church. Whether that's this church or any other, you need to be in a place where the pastor, the shepherd, labors over the Word of God. So I want to challenge you this morning to consider the great price that Christ paid to give gifts to this body in His victory procession as He ascended on to high and He gave out all of the gifts, you realize the great value that He paid for that? It was the price of His own life. The only perfect life ever to have lived. He descended from heaven to earth. Think about it. He descended from His kingship in heaven to be born in a little manger in a dirty little village the corner of the earth. He descended from the honor of heaven to be dishonored. He descended from angels praising Him to be murdered by sinful men. And He descended to the lower parts of the earth to conquer death and to conquer Hades. And in His victorious ascension, He gave each and every single one a unique, costly, valuable gift. Are you using it to build up His body? Or are you paying the price of admission, sitting back and watching the show? Father, I thank You for Jesus Christ. I thank you, God, that your plan was perfect and the execution of your plan, sending Jesus Christ to be the sacrifice for our sins was the only way to save us. And I thank you, Lord, for the price that he paid that I could have right standing before you. I thank you, Lord, that in his plan, he conquered death and he conquered Hades. And then he led the captor captive. Lord, now we have the ability to be free from sin. 
We're no longer enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to the righteous service of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I just pray for all of those here this morning that you would help us to put our gifts to work to build up the body of Christ. Help us to do our very best to give sacrificially, to give in humility, in meekness, and in patience to the building up and the edification of the saints, we pray in Jesus' name.